remember you're a geek, but you've thought about your product and service and the environment and the target market and what you think with your nth degree knowledge of details in that area, you think you know what's useful and what's going to be needed for people that aren't geeks. <laughs> that comes with two disadvantages. There's a lot of advantages to being a geek and knowing the ins and outs of what you're building or supplying. But remember, your customers aren't going to come to your product with your level of knowledge. They are no. probably going to come to it differently. They'll want different details from it. And so remember, try to envisage, imagine you don't know anything about your product. What would you do then when you pick up a phone or you log onto a website? What is it you need if you're a uninformed but digitally abled, uninformed but digitally enabled person? Welcome to Purpose Driven Fintech. I'm your host, Monica Millares. I interview fintech founders, product leaders, and experts to uncover their stories, challenges, and lessons learned in building products with impact. To win the battle with financial stress and have social impact, we need to build products that solve real customer needs in a differentiated manner. Today, I speak with Fleas Berridge, director and co-founder at Ordo, an open banking payments as a service fintech. Fleas has a background in music, law, and payments. We talk about resilience and embracing failure, account information services and payment initiation services, open banking standards, learning who is your target audience and iterating accordingly, designing for customers who do not have your level of knowledge, addressing concerns about data privacy and security in open banking, and gender, social, and economic background diversity in fintech. Hello, please. I am really looking forward to having this conversation to you. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Thanks very much, Monica. Me too. Yes, it's exciting. So <laughs> before, <laughs> before we get into it, I think it's important that we get to know you, especially because you have a fascinating background and <laughs> how you ended up doing fintech. So I'll start with a bunch of like speed dating questions. That's how I call them. So let's start with what is your favorite type of music? I'd have to go for indie rock. It memories back in the 90s as I was at uni so and sixth form oasis blur that kind of nice. stuff that would be my go-to cool I like that and then <laughs> <laughs> yeah what's the best gift you've ever received and a gift can be anything it doesn't need to be material okay so I've got two and one is super recent so the first one was a secret picnic a couple of years oh, ago and you are given clues a day before it happens and the clue is to where to get to. And I did it on my bike around the Surrey Hills. Oh, and nice. It was, yeah, it's, it turns out it's quite hard work. It was meant for cars. And you get to each destination and they give you a bit more of your picnic and they provide you with a picnic spot at the end. That was super brilliant fun. And I think it's from surpriseme.com. Yeah, And then most recently, a friend got me Poetry on Prescription, which is a little bottle of Poe, which I even have here. Here oh, we are. That is cool. And every time oh, wow. I wow me out, I just pop one of these open and it gives me an inspirational quote or part of a poem. I love it. That's a great present. Yes, it is a great present. Cool. That is super yeah. cool. Okay, so what is your superpower then? 
my superpower is to take giant leaps without thinking about them too much and be thinking about them later. <laughs> so that makes you a very adventurous woman then. What's yeah, your, maybe, what's your, what's been your, your most adventurous adventure? Well, I've been to, traveling is always an adventure. So I've been to China, which was my, pretty much my first holiday beyond a package holiday to Spain and a university exchange to America. So to then go to a communist country first after that felt quite adventurous. But what I mean by giant leaps without thinking about them is to go, and we'll probably get onto this, to go from being a musician to mm-hmm. then spending an entire annual musician salary on law school to be a lawyer without thinking much about that. That's and awesome. And then probably my leap into fintech from being a lawyer too. Yes. And probably you and I have that in common. You know, like I left the UK to come and start a fintech. Yes. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I'll just figure it out. I'll just figure it out. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's and like, I, I truly believe something. if, if I were to have thought about those decisions more, I wouldn't have done them. And that made me too bad. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So this is one of my favorite questions to ask other fintechers. What is your favorite fintech that is not yours? Aha. Uh-huh, okay. My favorite fintech that isn't mine. I really love, what's it called? I call it Lickety. Kitty Split, it's called. It's not an app, unusually, but it's a web presence and you don't have to sign up, join it for it to help oh, nice. you. And it's for group holidays. And as you're going along on your holiday, whoever buys dinner that night, for example, they put their entries into that adventure. You sign, you, you sign up your excursion with on the platform and for example a few weeks ago I went to Paris with my friends for my birthday so we signed up Paris trip who's on there and you each input your expenses and it constantly calculates who has to pay back how much to give you the equal amounts in the fewest number of transactions and you can even tailor it with well I had steak and a glass of champagne but my friend only had bread and water so I would pay more of that bill and you can oh, wait. Oh, wow. At yep. that level. It's really tailored. Yep. That is cool. I'll definitely check it out. Yeah. Yep, and it's solving a customer problem. Yeah. A real one. That is cool. That is cool. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, I think this is a great way to get into, into our conversation because exactly they, they, off, they solve a customer problem. So I guess like I would like to start with what has been the role of purpose in your life and in Ordo's life? So you you open with real questions with a real big meaty question. We could spend the whole podcast talking about this. Yes. But the role of purpose in my life pops into my head multiple times a day. And I don't want to be cheesy about it, but what those thoughts and the little voice reminding me to think about these things boil down to are... How can I tackle X, Y, Z to make a difference to that situation? How can I deal with such and such to have the biggest impact? I'm an avid Brené Brown follower. So that Mm. very greatly concept where almost it doesn't matter if you fail, you probably are, you are going to fail sometimes. But the point is, and you'll get the greatest fulfillment out of life 
if you just try things and sometimes yes. they'll work for sure. And it's about, and I think it's that mindset that turns just doing a job and taking off tasks off a list that's just wearying into something meaningful that gives you energy rather than drains it. I think that's key. For me, I think it's about that, that purpose, the role of purpose in our lives. And I've thought about it many times. It's like, I can do my job and it's just my job, right? And then you get tired of doing your job and every week becomes the same week because you wake up, you eat, you go to work, you come back, you you sleep, and then you repeat. And it's draining. But the moment that you add purpose to work, yeah, many of us, especially the people listening to this podcast, like we are very career oriented. The moment that you give purpose to work, then you have meaning and then it doesn't become a re- life in repeat. Yeah. It's just yeah. exciting Grand and it gives you joy and then you're like, yeah, emotionally engaged and it yeah. makes a massive difference. Yeah. And so, and what does that look like in uh, my day-to-day life, which is sat at my living room table with my homemade blackboard because I we all work from home mostly. Yeah, it means not shirking away from hard conversations, difficult decisions, taking the hard way if that's the best way, and demonstrating that bravery and fearlessness in maybe failing and making a mistake and it's okay to make a mistake and own up to it and deal with that mistake demonstrating that and living that for the rest of the company and our employees so that they can trust you when you say I don't want you to work long hours I want you to take your annual leave and not check your emails we've got to tackle this difficult issue and I know it's difficult and uncomfortable but it will only get worse if just it all yes and just the one other thing which I found really useful over lately over about the past year or so is knowing what my, what, what sabotages me? What are my characteristics, my go-tos that are my weaknesses? And being, just being aware of them helps you stop them in their track. Yes. Take over your decision making part of your brain. So, for example, not having that victim mentality of, oh, I've got so many emails, it's all all down to me and no one else is here to do this. You can turn, you can usually turn these sorts of things into, okay, so this is difficult and there are a lot of emails in my inbox, Yeah, but how can I make an impact on that? Not, not just a task list and recognizing my victim brain is going to go to, oh, poor me. And then turning that around. Yes. And you know what? It, well, I, I don't know if I consciously do that, but what I'm, I've been noticing that I do more of and I'm a big fan of is celebrating. And I think the common thread between probably you and I, it's like impact. So when I am, let's say, at work and I'm like, instead of saying, oh, I know I need to do this or yeah. this meeting, no, no, no. I kind of do it. And then at the end of the day, even if it's just like a, note in my head it's like a millisecond thing that I was like that meeting went well I think I had impact yeah oh that conversation went well I think it had impact oh I'm very glad I had a conversation with so and so I think it had impact yeah and it's it's especially when when you start moving from a very delivery role to more of a leading role when you're like it's the impact sometimes it's very untangible 
Mm. That is also very important because you're like, mm. yeah, I'm stopping to recognize. Yeah, I, that needle action had impact. Well, regardless of what role you have, actually, it's like, yeah, that had impact, that had impact, that had impact. And you celebrate yeah. it because you acknowledge it and you're like, ah, oh, yeah, good job. And then you yeah. go on to, with your Yeah, absolutely. And that, that billions, doesn't it? Because sometimes, especially if you're in a startup, it's roller coaster, sure. Mm-hmm. And some it takes a long time for a big win to come along. So yeah. if you if you only celebrate and pat yourself on the back for the big wins, it's the real tough mm-hmm. hill battle. Yes. Yes. So you need to be disciplined and recognize the little wins and not just sweep on to the next thing. It helps you restore yourself, which enables you to keep going longer. And also your your team and your staff and your employees need to see that too. They need to see you in a good, uplifting mood, knowing that what they're working and what they're doing, what they're working towards and what they're doing is good and building something and, and making a difference to the company. So it, it's important for resilience and restoration as well. It is. I love it. I'm loving this conversation and we're just getting <laughs> <Me> started. <laughs> I'm like, this is so cool. So tell us about like you, what's your journey? Because you have a fascinating journey. Talking about yeah. resilience and change and adventure, it's like you have a fascinating journey. So yeah. I would love to hear your journey, how you went like from being a musician to being a CEO and founder. And then basically, <laughs> yeah, like how did Ordo come about in that in that journey? Yeah. Well, oddly, a sentence I never thought I'd say, maybe it all started when my teacher at primary school gave me a recorder and we we had one week of recorder group. I don't know why it was only ever one week, but I got this recorder and a recorder book and it was never asked for back. So I remember sitting on my bed at home as about an eight-year-old, just going through my recorder book and teaching myself recorder and how to read music. And then... I went to Sunday school at the nearby Salvation Army and I thought, I want to be in the band. I want to play those bright, shiny, loud brass instruments. And you just get given whatever's in the band cupboard at the time. And I just loved it. I loved playing and I got a cornet, which is like a squash trumpet, and I got a tenor horn. And then I got this other funny instrument that's called a euphonium. And I loved it and I played all the time. So it didn't feel like this chore of I had to practice. And so I was adamant when I was from the age of 10, I was going to be a musician. No matter what everyone told me, there are no jobs. It's really skilled. You won't make it. You're not good enough. Thousands of people try this. I thought, nope, I'm, I'm going to play my trombone as it became for a living. And I did do that for five to eight years, depending on whether you count through uni or not. And it was great. And I loved it. And I loved playing classical music in orchestras. Neighbors really didn't love it so much. But I got to a point where I thought, I love this, but my my forecast, financial forecast, is literally a week ahead. Do I have a gig next Saturday or not with some teaching in between? And I thought, this is fine when I'm 25. It's not going to be fine when I'm 65 and nothing might change here. There's no career structure program in place for freelance musicians. And so my abiding thought was, I want a job or I don't have to worry about money. That's it. I don't want to have to do this Mm -hmm. every week to see if things add up. And I kind of thought if if I'm going to give up something I love so much, it has to be really worth it. So I can't count. So I can't be an accountant. I'm too squeamish to be a doctor. I know I'll be a lawyer. And that is about as much thought 
that went into it. And I then signed up to law school to go to law school in the evenings part-time. So that was two two-year courses, so four years. And I remember having a sort of white hot panic moment as I was, I started law school once whilst I was still a musician. And like I said earlier, total law school fees at the time, I mean, there'll be loads more now, but at my time, it was my entire musician's annual salary. Wow. And if you think about what would you spend your annual salary on now, you'd, you'd give that a lot of thought. Yes. It would have to be something very special. Yeah. But I mean, what is more precious than education? So, and, and I don't regret it and wouldn't look back. But I went from not knowing where I was going to be week by week and having a different mm. place to work and different people I would see every week and every gig to going into the same office to sit ne- at the same desk, to sit next to the same person. Car- to do very different work. So yeah, I guess is very different. And then, so that was me becoming a, a lawyer and I worked in private practice, city firms for several years. And then I... How was that? Like, how was the change? Because I cannot picture you like going from musician to lawyer. <laughs> As you explain it, I'm like, that must have felt weird. <laughs> well, quite not. Yeah, yeah. So... Part way through being at law school, I thought I should probably belatedly thought I should check whether I like this or not. Mm-hmm. So I p- applied for roles as a paralegal, which is sort of assistant to lawyers, completely unqualified. And so that that's when I went in and I, I worked for a firm called DLA, DLA Piper, as they are now, and near St. Paul's, so full on in at the deep end. And that's where I thought... I did think you are you're crazy. Why have you done this? You you come into the same desk. How can you do this for the rest of your life? How does how does everyone else do this? <laughs> but then gradually I learned that or I realized that what I lose in variety and difference, I gain in now having colleagues who I know about. I knew yeah. my colleague next to me was trying to give up smoking and I knew my colleague behind me was, had an argument with her partner last night and that became the substitute for having such change and agility and I, and I gradually got used to it and, and I mm. like having the same employees that I get to know and you can yes. exchange stories with. Yes, 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 yes. And then how did you end up creating Ordo? <laughs> Yeah, I was like because from lawyer to I was in private. Yes, yeah, I was in private practice, and we'd gone through the financial crisis, and then I, I think other things made working in corporate and property difficult in law firms. And I thought I got into this to not worry about money and to enjoy my job. This is this is not so fun anymore. I want to try a different angle to it. This time I won't completely up and change career entirely. <laughs> so I decided to move in-house and mm. I went for a job interview where initially I thought I'm just going for, for interview practice here because I don't understand what this company does from its website. Why can't it be clear? It's miles away in Tower Bridge, which is not miles away, but it felt miles away. Um, and the pay's rubbish. Mm. And I thought, I'm going anyway, interview. 
And I went and I was completely bowled over by the person that interviewed me and thought, damn, now I really want this job because it sounds really interesting. And it's all about And I still don't really understand it, but it sounds interesting. And you discover there's this whole deep, deep pool of stuff that you were absolutely not aware of. And you just go around and you pay for stuff, pay for stuff online or you pay for stuff in a shop. But there's a whole industry, of course, that makes that happen. And so I I got that job and it was for a services company giving legal advice to all the payment Mm. systems in the UK. So faster payments, BACs, checks, SWIFT. And so I worked across all those payment systems giving legal advice. And after a couple of years there, the CEO of Faster Payments, which is the payment system in the UK that handles all online and mobile payment, yeah, said, would I come over, be interested in coming over and, and being the lawyer solely for Faster Payments and being part of their senior management team, which was a, a big step up for me at the time. And I thought, you're a clever guy and what you're doing in faster payments which was to open up that payment system to non-bank participants yeah and a different type of participation yeah that that sounds interesting and exciting too so I moved to faster payments and I was there for a few years and we did when I started the participants in faster payments it was about 10 it's now 40 Wow. Including non-banks. So what that means is this instant payment mechanism that we have in the UK is now available to the customers of 40 institutions rather than just the top eight, eight to 10 that it used to be. So much more coverage, much wider, broader consumer benefits and breaking that dominant that the top banks have. That's impact. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And then the final development, I suppose, on top of that is once all of that had been completed after a couple of years, then the industry talks start, is talk, starting to talk about this new technology, new legislative and technology-enabled solutions called open banking, which mm-hmm. I know we'll talk about in a bit. And that was going to be a competitive layer on top of the core infrastructure of faster payments. So we contributed to the blueprint for all of that in the form of the Payment Strategy Forum. And we could never have run an open banking company at Faster Payments because open banking is a a higher competitive level and Faster Payments is non-competitive monopoly infrastructure. And so couple of things happened in parallel. All the payment systems in the UK were consolidated into one entity. It's now called pay.uk. And so if you've got that one entity, you don't need senior management teams in each of the payment systems. So mm. we made ourselves redundant. Okay. And we thought, well, we know all about open banking technology and the underlying payment method, which is faster payments. So why don't we go and set up our open banking fintech? Hence- that is cool. Ordo was born on the 1st of May, 2018. Oh, wow. That's a fascinating story. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, you, I had all these capabilities. I was made redundant. Let's go and build something. Yeah. Basically. Yeah, exactly. Let's do this together. Yeah. That is super cool. 
Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about Ordo and your products? Like what exactly did you guys do? Yeah. So we built an open banking payments as a service platform. So let me tell you about open banking. There are two strands to open banking. One is account information services. And one, another strand is payment initiation services. And this was all brought into being and enabled by PSD2, the Payment Services Directive legislation, the second mm -hmm. one that came out of Europe, and implemented by the CMA, the Competition and Markets Authority in the UK, them setting an order mandating this be put in place on the top the biggest nine banks in the UK and Ireland. So that includes Barclays, NatWest, Lloyds, the top nine of them. And so what that enabled is the legislation gave the capability um, and the creation of these new types of financial conduct authority regulated entities like Ordo, which is, and we're called account information service providers and payment initiation service providers. So we've got our Our, our structure and our status and standing set out in law. We're overseen and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. And the CMA order made those top nine banks put in place the APIs, the application programming interfaces, that are, that are like a travel plug on the edge of their systems so that we can connect to them and provide data and services, in our case, payment services, mm -hmm. to our business and consumer customers. And awesome. for payment, what that means is we can facilitate instant payment via a digitally joined up request from your biller. So rather than you have some, so you have, you buy something online and you receive a bill for it and you're required to go into your banking app, remember to go into your banking app and pay, go into your banking app, type in the account details and hopefully you don't get it wrong. And hopefully the invoice you've been emailed hasn't been fraudulently intercepted. And so the fraudsters put on their own account details and then you finally pay and hopefully it arrives in the right, the correct account and it will probably be incorrectly referenced. What open banking payments initiation does is put that, put a secure wrapper around it all, a secure messaging service and enables that payment instantly within about three taps from the payer's phone and receiving notification of a payment request. So having said all of this, who are your customers? So we're a B2B service. Yes. And there's an interest, there was a learning there in who our target audience is. <laughs> so we built back in our, our young day, our young naive days of 2018, we thought you absolutely need an app. You need an app. We'll build an Apple app, an iOS app first. So we did that and it's brilliant and we all love it. Probably far more functionality than it needed. So learning one, mm. be strict with yourself on what an MVP is. Yes. <laughs> need to be all singing or dancing and all detail and do everything and more. An MP MV, minimum viable product, needs to just be small and slim and narrow and demonstrate the core of your proposition. And I've lost my thread. What was your question? Uh, clients. Who are your clients? Oh, yes. I love the thread that you're going into. <laughs> yeah, like, sorry. Great. Yeah. Unstructured brain at work. <laughs> great. Yeah. And then we looked at who's our target audience. So we thought, right. 
consumers in the UK don't pay to make payments directly. They pay within the bundle of services, but they don't pay every time they need to make a payment. So they're not going to pay for us. Why would they? So consumers aren't our target market. So businesses, right? So what businesses? We looked at some data that came out of government departments at the time, which was really useful and showed us what size com- who makes how many payments per year in what size company and in what sector. And by over and above, the companies that made the most number of payments were those two to 49ers, as they called them, companies with two to 49 employees. We thought, great, we're going after them, me's. And we thought, yeah, they'll love it because, and they'll adopt really quickly and that'll be brilliant for us because SMEs are run by the people that feel the pain of taking payment, trying to collect payment, and they're the people who own the company and so are the decision makers. And there's not got corporate processes, so they'll move really quickly. It turns out SMEs don't move really quickly. <laughs> We're a substitutable service. So at the moment, unless you're a payments geek like I am, you think you can take payments and the card costs, the extortionate card costs and the chargeback costs that businesses suffer, you just think that's a cost of business. Yeah, exactly. And also Auto did some research and we discovered that I think it was a fifth of businesses don't really know how much they're paying for their payment services. So SMEs, they're not quick to move. They think they've already got a solution. They don't need anything better because they're also completely unaware of, unaware of fraud and that if you email out an invoice, that, that could really easily be hacked into. And of course, there's fewer of them and they're concentrating on running their business quite rightly and they've not got yeah. time to think about this new tech. And then when they do adopt, they're really small compared to what you could get if you were with a corporate. So we we tried targeting me at the beginning, in the beginning, and then pivoted. That was our one pivot we've done. We've now pivoted to target corporate and those intermediary platforms. So then there's probably a few platform, IT platforms, enterprise systems that provide services to the property market. And so our targets now are those intermediaries because we integrate with three and we get all the business of all of those property companies. Interesting. So you're quite niche because in my mind, I was like, hey, how how do you differentiate from other platforms doing similar, right? But it's like, yeah, there's even a way to differentiate in well in any business line. Well, we where we do differentiate ourselves, we do that by saying we've got the value add, we've got a full service. We we've designed our APIs to be really simple for a business to integrate with us. We've we've done most of the work. So if you integrate with us, basically a business just needs to give us their branding and logo. We drop that into the screens that we've already built and designed for the business. It's all white labeled and away they go. It's it's like plug and play, as we call it. But basically, if you're a platform that enables other businesses to collect payment, we're useful. Awesome. Cool. So that leads me very nicely into one of my most curious questions. What are your thoughts about what makes great product? And I think you're getting into, into that conversation. 
Yeah. Well, what I've, I've been thinking about this and what I came up with was remember you're a geek. That is I so mean, I mean, you yeah. Everyone listening. <laughs> yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> remember you're a geek and what you're that customer. means. You've you've thought about your product and service and the environment and the target market and what you think with your nth degree knowledge of details in that area, you think you know what's useful and what's going to be needed for people that aren't geeks. <laughs> and so that that comes with two disadvantages. There's a lot of advantages to being a geek and knowing the ins and outs of what you're building or supplying. But remember that your customers aren't going to come to your product with your level of knowledge. They are no. probably going to come to it differently. They'll want different details from it. And so remember, try to envisage, imagine you don't know anything about your product. What, what would you do then when you pick up a phone or you log onto a website? What, what is it you need if you're a uninformed but digitally abled Uninformed but digitally enabled, as this is fintech, person. And and it also it leads to other blind spots where you just miss things because you're so in the weed. And I've got uh, a couple of examples. When we built our beautiful app that we so love, we we did some, as I call it, lab testing, not really on rats. No animals were harmed in the making of order. <laughs> got actual humans and we paid them it was all very fair and kind and to test our app and we did this through a independent commercial uh, customer experiences company so we had got the people in and they had their had a mobile phone with audio on it and they had a little camera over the phone screen they had a camera around their head so we could see what they were looking at and they had a watch, a watch that measured their heart rate and sweat rate. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And then moving through the different screens and like a registration journey, for example, we can tell if they're getting stressed or not. And, and minuscule counting, how long did it take them to work out the button to register is there and scroll up and those sorts of things. And People will want to know what's the name of this agency. So we'll have to add that in the show notes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's called Big. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, that is cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was really good. And this told us two key things. One, I mean, in hindsight, you can say, how did you not think of that? But one thing that we didn't think of was having this, we call it a guest checkout function. So we're, free for consumers to use it's probably not consumers that are going to initiate an open banking transaction because open banking is a you say request for payment so mm. so it's probably going to be your window cleaner let's say your window cleaner who's cleaned your windows and then sends you your bill and they can send that digitally either by text message whatsapp email they can now show you a qr code we've built that yeah. luckily and the customer gets a secure link or a pay now button. And we did, to, the payer did have to sign up with Ordo for that notification to reach them. And one woman quite rightly said, no, I don't, I don't want to sign up or download the app to be able to do this. I might only do it once. If I like it, I'll sign up. 
And we thought, yeah, of course, can't believe we missed that. So we built this guest checkout function, which means anyone who banks with a bank who is in open banking, which is just about every high street bank you can think of, apart from Metro and Co-op, boo, they need to get on the secure wow. bank Why and upgrade them themselves. I know. Sorry, Still guys, works. if you're listening, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, come on. So Metro. Yes. Uh, they're meant to have APIs in by the end of May, but that is not looking, that's not looking likely. So any bank apart from Metro or Co-op, we can reach that payer and they can use our service to pay. So it's a good message for our cust- business customers. We can reach any payers. No sign up or download needed. They just get a link, click, three taps, and they've paid their bill and the money goes directly from their bank account instantly into the bank account of the business. I'm lost than card payments. Wow. That is cool. Yeah. So we built the guest checkout function and here was the other interesting thing we learned. We we had all that we had all this color coding throughout our app. Our colors are sort of teal as I've tried to emulate with chalk here. And we had the you can have the payments I've requested list in our app and on our platform and you've you've got your payments that are requested from you that you need to pay your bills and we had them as your bills are red or saffron orange as it's really called and your what you've requested what you're waiting for is teal green because we thought you've got to pay money that's red pay attention to it alert and what you're waiting for that's green we had such a diverse reaction to those screens and people paying money and paying bills and how long they would allow to pay a bill. We had one guy who was a tour guide. He was really funny. He said, no, nah, I don't pay anything. I don't pay anything until I get a red demand. No, nah, I just wait until then. Not sneeze. If it's a small business, I'll pay them because they're a small business. What if you're Other a big player? Yeah. Gas bills, I wait until I get final demand. Oh, I, wow. Oh, my gosh. I wouldn't be able to sleep at night if I did that. <laughs> my friends. <laughs> but this guy, he was perfectly calm. He he was going to pay. I had every intention of paying, but not until he absolutely had to. Because he's and managing his money and that works for him. I didn't even get I the impression that he was managing his money. No. That was just how he approached it. He thought, no, why should I give these big companies their money? Any time before I absolutely needed to. Okay. And he was perfectly calm about that. Contrast with another woman who said, no, I, I would never look at this. If this, if my bills were all here listed and they were in saffron orange or red, as she called it, I'd never look at it. This is terrible. I'd, it'd give me an anxiety attack. And I, and it made us think, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Our, our Ordo's purpose is to help people manage their finances and in the cost of living crisis, control their money and feel like they're in control of their money. Presenting someone with a red screen that makes them feel anxious to the point they're never going to look at it, that's terrible. That's the opposite of what we were trying to achieve. So we just switched the colors. And so what your list of payments to pay now is in calming teal color, which is entirely why we set up Ordo. Awesome. So lab rat testing, preferably on humans that you do not mistreat and that you pay. <laughs> yes. Is crucial. Uh, remember you're a geek 
and that has advantages and disadvantages. And build a product that seamlessly fits into someone's life. Don't just build a product. Build a product that seamlessly fits into someone's life and it solves that life problem. Exactly. Exactly. Because we are not here to build features. We're not here to build payment products. We're here yeah. to help customers with their lives. Yeah, exactly. Therefore, we sometimes, I believe sometimes we get, like you say, we are geeks. We get excited yeah. about the payments and the APIs and these and the others. Yeah. <laughs> we do. Yeah. And oh, you could do this because the API allows you to imagine we could do that. Yeah. But then it's a no, remember that we're dealing with humans. And yeah. We're here yeah. to help people with their life. Not we're not here to build more tech, more code. Yeah. It's yeah. life that we're helping people with. And even our colors, I mean, it's not super good there, but it's teal and saffron orange and granny smith apple green. They weren't our original colors either. I, I can't remember what our original colors were, but then you put them through an accessibility filter and we saw that people, some people can't see half of this. So you adjust the colors and the shade to then a level that you've, everyone can see everyone at an accessibility level can see everything and and we got the colors we do that that wasn't intentional either and so it's about checking checking your blind spots that you don't know you have to make sure your product is fit for purpose and for people that aren't like you and also being open to being surprised and being shown new solutions and new ways of doing things that you and your geek brain were never going to think of and they are better. Yes, I love that. I love your whole thinking around product. Totally love it. I'm very conscious of time. How much extra time do you have? I have time. I'm good for time. Cool. Awesome. Okay, then we'll just continue. I'm sorry to waffle on. No, it's It's amazing. It's a really good conversation. <laughs> okay. So talking about product and people's lives and now open banking. I love the whole concept, but there is one thing that makes me nervous. Okay, come on. Open come on. banking, open finance, open data. And then my product mind, like you say, as a geek. I'm like, oh my God, just imagine all the use cases that you can use with all my data as soon as I connect everything. This is amazing. And my other product geek mind goes like, oh my God, this is so scary. What will people do with my data? Oh, yeah. So yeah. you are a lawyer as well. Yeah. <laughs> How are we looking at protecting the customer and customer's data and how much we can do or cannot do or innovate privacy policy like all these can be used against me like because you have my data what's the thinking right now yeah so whoever came up with the name of calling this open banking should have done some lab rat testing themselves and tested what do people think about when you say open banking and open data people think my bank account is open to everyone my data is is available everywhere and in fact what that actually means is the entire opposite of that open banking and open finance is more secure than 
alternative mechanisms that we had in the past and people like Metro and Co-op are using today. So open banking means more secure access and financial information passed through APIs rather than the alternative, which is screen scraping, which is absolutely terrible, for example. Yeah. And your data always remains your data. It never becomes ours. That's one thing. That's GDPR protections, which were transposed over into the UK. They're still there. And what's more, for open banking companies, so as I was saying at the beginning, the account information provider types and the payment initiation provider types, we are required to have our customers' consent for whatever data we have. And we're only allowed to use the data for carrying out that service for you. Very important. Yeah, we're not allowed to harvest all this data. We're not allowed to just, and we're absolutely not allowed to do anything else with it or sell it on. Absolutely not. Love that. Follow-up question. Mm -hmm. In the UK, well, I love the work that the FCA and regulators are doing. So it's like Mm -hmm. customers are protected. Is it the same across the world? Do so you see like, that trend across regulators following many people, many people, many countries tend to follow, you know, the FCA, what they are doing, that's yeah. leading standard. Do you see the same principles applying in other geographies? So for Europe, yes. And more widely, I think so. So Bordeaux's awesome. in the UK, so I mostly know about the UK and I'm broadly aware of Europe. And so the le- the enabling legislation that we exist under is European legislation. So yes, the fact that we need your consent to have your data and we are only allowed to do provide you with the service, payment and account information service with that data is in the legislation. The Payment Services Directive 2, which applies to all of Europe and in the UK, it's the Payment Services Regulations 2017. So that's the same for UK and Europe. What I should also say is to provide these services, companies like Ordo and other fintechs need to be authorised and regulated by the FCA and are authorised and regulated by the FCA on an ongoing basis. So we have to file numerous reports quarterly. And that means our security systems, our business models, our complaints procedure, our GDPR procedures and policies and processes all need to be submitted to the FCA. They investigated all of that. They investigated us as people running such companies. Mm. And then that ongoing. So there there should be a high degree of trust in these fintech companies. And that will be the same for Europe. Amazing. More globally, I believe that the same models. Yes, I agree. And you're right. A lot of regulators tend to follow the FCA. Yes, yes. So I'm thinking, let's say, APAC is a little bit behind the UK or Europe when it comes to open banking as such. So, but it's just a matter of time before it starts like boom, 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 catching up. What would be the advice, I guess, like for regulators in APAC? when building the regulatory framework for the region? What do you tell them? What would I tell regulators? Just before that, I think other countries are catching up, if not overtaking, on open banking, especially into open finance. Uh, 
the UK's got to work hard to keep our, our wafer thin head to head time ahead. Brazil, I think, is, is yes. there's great adoption. Australia's got uh, the makings, if not better, the landscaping for open banking and open finance. But what would I tell regulators? I'd plea for regulators to try to find an agile, which is to say mostly quicker, way of doing things and getting through their processes. Our authorization, can't remember how many months now it took exactly, but many. And we went from having, submitting our application, zero questions and information and feedback, and then being authorized. And I think it took us nine months. And if you're a fintech, and for example, if you have share equity share investments, and if you have a change of control in your shareholders, yes. you need prior authorization from the regulator for that. The rate, at, the pace at which regulators run at is not the pace that fintechs need when they're running on risk investment. So my, my plea to regulators in the UK and abroad would be apply a proportionate oversight level to fintechs, especially for open banking and open finance, because we don't hold any client monies ever. So we've got no client monies that go missing. So it's it's our systems that matter and the reliance on our systems that matter. So given that regulators need to be able to be agile and act at pace in order to keep with the development and agility of fintechs. Yes, probably we'll need to do like how do we call this exchange of cultures? Yeah. Regulators. Yeah, yeah. culture exchange. Yeah. <laughs> Regulators. This is how fintechs really work. Spend a yeah. day in a fintech. <laughs> You'll be yeah. impressed how crazy it gets in there. We go fast. Boom, boom, boom. We have stress. Boom, boom, boom. And then, and then yeah, it's stressful not to know when we're going to get the approval or the feedback because mm. we're running out of money yeah as well and and there's a balance you don't want to be too callous with that and and probably the regulators would think well if only you could spend a month with us and you no. fintech come and see how how it's like how difficult it is yeah that's why i said a culture exchange like we yeah. as fintechs need to be more understanding of the regulators and it's like yeah. their job is to protect customers and exactly to do it do the proper due diligence and put the framework so that we have like fair play across the industry so it's a yeah it's a tricky one but mm -hmm. i'm sure we're getting there i think yeah. regulators across the world are doing a good job too yeah yeah awesome so you touched the word diversity in the past mm -hmm. few minutes, can you expand? I think that that's a topic that I feel it's very relevant. Mm -hmm. Can you expand on your thoughts about diversity in fintech? And I'll leave it yeah. as open as that. <laughs> well, being a female founder, there do there does need to be greater diversity. I mean, that's the that the, the non surprising statement of the century. I do have female counterparts in other companies and Ordo is part of a membership policy organization called the Open Finance Association. And, and there are lots of talented women that contribute to that. So that does need 
improvement. And basically, it needs something that enables women to succeed and I don't mean to be trite, but fulfill their potential. And that means basically giving women senior jobs, equal pay and funding for the the startups they founded. My marketing person said to me yesterday that a stat which I did already know, there are more CEOs in the fee 100 called Dave than there are female CEOs. (laughs) I mean, if it wasn't so awful, it would be funny. It's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. And so women need to be offered real opportunities and to take those opportunities and encouraged and nurtured and supported, not just be offered mentoring, which is my frustration with programs. It is patronizing. But also... Over and above that, something that I hear less about is then social mobility and a social diversity in fintech and in society generally. I've been to, so throughout my A-levels, I went to university, I went to a music conservatoire, I've been to law school for my whole adult working life. I've, I've met two other people who grew up on a council estate like I did. What's a council estate for anyone who's not in the UK? Uh, Yes, right. Okay. So a council estate, yes, it is sort of a a general term. I mean, it refers to properties that are owned by the local councils and boroughs. So for example, in London, there'd be Haringey Council that covers the area of Tottenham and then Wandsworth Council that covers the area of Earlsworth and Battersea. So they're the entities that deal with collecting your rubbish and and funding state schools, which is where children go if you don't pay for their schooling. And they they have housing and it's for lower income people who can't afford to buy their own properties in the UK. Buying your own property is an obsession with UK people. <laughs> and so if you, you where those properties that are owned by the council are put together, they're, they're often called estates. And so mm-hmm. there is a real gap between if you're at the more, if you have an upbringing with people that are on the more affluent end of a spectrum, who usually not usually, who can often go to private schools in the UK. That's where you pay to send your kid to a school. And it is invariably people who often, unfortunately, go to private school or there is some, there's a spectrum. It's not just one or the other. People who have grown up in richer areas, more affluent, and so tend to have better schools, smaller classrooms, not kids in the classroom where they don't speak English as if it's English at all, let alone as a first language. And so in in all of my adult life, I've only ever met two other people who grew up on a council estate like I did. And largely speaking, a lot, if not most of the people I work with and is in my, my life and social circle now, went to private school. Mm. And to to follow to, to trans over, and I can't remember whether it was the former Australian or New Zealand prime minister that said they were referring they were referring to women. You either think that women are more stupid than men, 
or you have to look at society and ask, what is it we're doing that means women are being held back? Because it is not 50-50. It is not women have half the senior positions in business and half the senior positions in politics. And that is true. And I would say the same thing. You either think, unless you are born in an affluent area, and it measures can often, but there's no right or wrong, or so measures can often be, did you go to private school? Do you own your own property? Unless you're born in an affluent area, you are more stupid and you're therefore not fit or capable enough to become senior in business or senior in politics. And I, I do not believe a person's capability is down to where they were born. Yeah. And so I have to ask, how can we get more people from a less affluent, less privileged upbringing? How can we nurture and assist that to get more people who, from the hard school of Knox, as you'd say in the UK, into more senior positions in business and politics? And so that's, that's my, that, and I think that's, even, that's got an even worse record than gender yes. ethnicity diversity. Probably that's the first time that I have that conversation, right? Like, because people focus on diversity and it's gender or, you know, like sexual orientation yes. or social background as in, ah, yeah, you'll bring like someone that comes from non-fintech to fintech to build a fintech. But yeah. we are not having the conversation about economic, socioeconomic background. Yes, that's and what's the implication? Yeah. And yeah. it like I've seen it in the UK, I've seen it in Mexico, I've seen it in Asia. Many of the people at the top went to private school. Mm, many yeah. of the people and I think there's many similarities between developing countries, in this case Latin America and APAC, mm -hmm. at least Southeast Asia. And one of the things that I've seen in common is many of the people having senior roles in banks, let's say, at least that that's my industry. Many of them went to a private school, like you say, within their country. Many of them went abroad to study their master's, whether that's the US, the UK, Australia, of course, I'm one of them as well, right? But I did go yeah. on a scholarship. I went like to a private school since I was a young girl with a scholarship because since I was a young girl, I was a geek. And then <laughs> I got in debt to go to the UK, right? Yeah. So that was more like ambition and smarts. But there is a lot of people who are like, yeah, they just happen to be born in a wealthy family. Mm -hmm. And then they go abroad, they study, they've got the qualifications. And then basically that's how, because they've got that education and those opportunities, they end up having the roles where they are. And it's not just because of the opportunities, it's because they had the network. Yeah, network is a big thing. <clears throat> they had the network. Funding. In funding yeah. as well? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it. It would be pretty difficult for me to be a solo founder and be raising funds because I, d I don't know, I don't know lots of rich people. 
and I don't have a network of knowing investors or VCs. And if if that were my role in order, then I'd go out and I'd learn that and I'd try contacting lots of people and knocking on doors, absolutely. But I think if if you're within that higher affluent level, you're probably your parents are probably going to be in higher paid jobs who might know other people who are in higher paid jobs who could give you valuable work experience. I mean, my work experience was looking after friends' kids and the take your kid to work day, which we have in the UK sometimes, meant I went to work with my dad who would clean and polish marble floors in hotels. So he'd do that overnight. So take your kid to work day might mean taking your child to your law firm or an engineering firm or something. It's probably boring for the child, but depending on how old they are, it looks better on your CV than I I went to the hotels with my dad and I had a go at the machine for cleaning the marble floors and making them buff up and shine. And it was really great fun, but not good experience for on a law firm application. And so those sorts of differences, I think there's no time, if you're in a lower income family, there's no spare time for or less spare time for studying. I've always had multiple jobs. You can't just concentrate on one thing. And it's not about saying that if you've got money, you you don't have to work. I'm not saying that people haven't worked hard enough or don't deserve what they have at all. What my plea would be is for people to look at when they're interviewing potential candidates or they've got a promotion come up in their company, look at what has that person overcome to get where they are? Is that more than someone of an equivalent role? If they were to be given the right support for them, could they fly so high you you could barely believe it because they've got crap skills to get where they were because they had to climb a mountain just to get to the start line. I love that because at some point I was like, oh my God, I'll ask her, what do we need to do? This is such a a structural problem but yeah. no well it is a structural problem but at the same time we can have a lot of impact by just doing that mindset shift and saying hey this person doesn't come from the best university in the country yeah. <laughs> which is usually a university with very high fees yeah well in the UK there's there's a cap and everyone just charges the cap so it's not, I mean it's rubbish because I mean even that is unfair because if you if you're in a private school you've got smaller classes there's yes. there's more dedicated teaching you're probably going to get higher grades though the likes of Oxford Cambridge Durham will probably want you and you pay 9 grand a year Whereas if you've had to have a job for the whole time you're not in school and you didn't realize study guides existed and your parents weren't able to help you with your homework, for example, maybe you your grades are low and you'll only be able to get into the non-red brick universities, as we call it in the UK, like top seven or something. And you still pay you still pay nine grand a year, I think it is, or something like that. So you still pay the same, but you you get a re university with a, rep a lower reputation. Mm -hmm. So this policy of only having Oxbridge or the Red Brick Unis in in the UK, I would abandon that if, if it were up to me. And 
imagine a person who's on their second career, they've not got great academic, they went to a first job for a company that you've never heard of, it's not, not well established or famous. What would you do? Would you, would you give a, a job to that person? That person was me. I don't have great academics because I didn't know what I was doing at school. I, I tried hard and my parents fought very hard for me to go to the best school within the area. But my academics aren't great. I was a lawyer a second time. I trained at a firm that no one will have heard of. And yet I find myself working in-house for a company who then the CEO of a company who saw me work said, will you come and work for me? which was very successful, and then who said, will you, should we go and do Wardo together? So I have to think with that evidence in me is just the same amount of capability as anyone else. And so actually what does academic grade matter? Of course they matter a bit, but they're not everything. And what does it matter what university you went to? And what does it matter if you went to a big consultancy that everyone's heard of or not? What matters is true capability and potential and what that person can achieve and is willing to try to achieve. Yes. And that's a very tough decision at the same time. I totally get it. I I myself, I was told at some point by my ex-boss many, many years ago, I was asking something about recruitment, right? And he said like, well, sometimes you just give to need to give people a chance. I mean, like you were a wild card, right? And I was like, what? Yes. I was like, was I a wild card? <laughs> and see where you are now. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. But yeah. yes, it's about, but then it's like when you have the CVs or you're going, forget about the CVs, when you're interviewing people, you do see the difference on the performance and the, how people think and behave and portray and everything of someone that comes from the top uni in the UK versus someone who doesn't. So it is at the same time, like, how do we remove that bias that just because right now you are not, let's say, the other candidate, it has the potential, did not go to that uni, therefore it's not that polished in the yes interview process. And well. that's a good way of putting it, not that polish. You don't have the right phrases. You've not thought of the right examples because you've got no one around to help you think of those examples. Exactly. And then it's more of a, the, the thing that I'm using in my brain when I'm meeting people now, it's like, yeah, he or she has potential mm-hmm. compared to the person that does come from the top uni in the UK, someone who doesn't. I'm like, yeah, but he or she is also doing all this stuff outside of work. That yeah. shows that they've got A, B, C, D. Oh, look yeah. at that. Maybe the she doesn't have, oh, that's another one. He or she doesn't have, for example, in my case, product experience if hiring mm-hmm. for a junior role. But she's an amazing marketeer and she's worked a lot with data. I'm like, oh, that can be helpful. I can train her mm-hmm. on product. She's mm-hmm. not that polished and maybe in her previous roles, in her previous company, she hasn't had the exposure that she needs. I see, yeah. the, I see the how I can nurture her and yeah, train yeah. her and build her and, and basically, you know, like help her achieve her, her potential as such. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it does take some mindset shift on us when we're interviewing such that mm-hmm. we do that comparison. The other yeah. one, it's the easy 
option. Oh, she comes from university yeah. name. They yeah. are the same age, roughly same experience. But and she clearly went to this uni, and then she went into all these competitions that, of course, she won. Yeah, first place with all these big brands in uni. Yeah. Yeah. Versus the other one that doesn't have that because she was not in that unit. She was not in that environment. Or and was probably had a part-time job whilst not able to apply for those awards. It's not about, and those candidates that we're describing are probably exceptionally good. And I, I don't want to knock them. It's about, but what else could you get? If you've already got those candidates in your company, what else could you get? Because mine and your experience of life and everything that goes with it up leading up to work, around work, we would have encountered and experienced very differently, which means you think differently, which means you think of different yes. things and come up with different points. I often do in meetings and, that, and people say, oh yeah, I didn't think of that. And I think, well, I don't see it any other way. So how how could we have thought differently but we did and that's a good thing to have especially in product you need people that are all different to think of oh well I wouldn't pick up my phone and just do that I I would do this and I wouldn't think to scroll down and I would I wouldn't think to press the button up there that's a bit detailed but you need people that have got different experiences you want to see how different people react and interpret to ensure your product is fit for not just geeks like you but broadly speaking the population and it makes for better business business decisions as well as being generally the right thing to do <laughs> yes and probably you and I can keep talking for an hour about this topic yes <laughs> so it's an amazing conversation let me wrap it up if there was one thing that you would change in fintech that would have the most impact for customers, staff, and shareholders, what would that be? I would abandon acronyms. Oh, yes. I'd abandon acronyms, which is such a simple thing to do because A, it's annoying, but B, all they do is say, this is exclusive. You can't come in. You're not clever enough. It knocks people's confidence in meetings. It causes people to doubt themselves. And this is everyone. Because I came across a new acronym today, just read Horizon Scanning Competition Law, SMS. What does SMS mean to you? Text. Yeah. And probably it's not the text, it's something else. <laughs> text messages. Absolutely, text messages. In competition law, I can't even remember what does it mean find my very tiny notes strategic market something beginning with s it means you, your company your company has an impact in a market and so you need to be directly regulated by the competition authority it's stupid because not only does it say this is an exclusive club that if you can't remember the name of this acronym in this meeting you're not in and all it does is create confusion yes why would you have throughout your company, throughout your product, run your meetings? Why would you do something that creates confusion? So the one thing is I would abandon acronyms and that whole philosophy because it only serves to exclude people. And by breaking that down, of course, I'm leading on to we need to be a more inclusive society. 
and give opportunities for people's talent and capability, not just those that we expect. Yes. And the summary of the acronyms is language. Language matters. The how we communicate matters a lot. Yeah. The wild card. A wild card. I know what that person meant, but really what that person meant was you don't come from the background we usually recruit from. And I was hoping you would fulfill a greater potential than you displayed in your interview. Oh, that is cool. <laughs> I don't, the wild card is much more catchy. <laughs> yes. I'm like, yeah. Awesome. Well, it's been an amazing conversation, please. Where yes, can I really we enjoyed it, Monica? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Where can people find you and Ordo if they want to reach out? Oh, wow. Ordopay.com. Or you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm Fliss Berridge. If you want to just have a try on Ordo, it's myordo.com. It's free. Sign up, send a payment request to your friend for a penny. It's really great. So love, love to hear any questions or requests for further information. Amazing. Thanks so much, please. Thank you. Um, See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye.